0: My name is Allison Felis and this is I'll Follow You, a podcast featuring light and lively conversations about film, music, and creative culture, coming to you from the People's Republic of Rogers Park on the far northeast side of Chicago. Today I'm pleased to have on the show one of my all-time favorite humans, David Higgins. David teaches English at Inver Hills Community College in Minnesota. He is a specialist in 20th century American literature and culture, and his research explores transformations in imperial fantasy during the Cold War period and beyond. His article, Toward a Cosmopolitan Science Fiction, won the 2012 Science Fiction Research Association's Pioneer Award for Excellence in Scholarship. He has published in journals such as American Literature, Science Fiction Studies, Science Fiction Film and Television, and Extrapolation. And his work has appeared in edited volumes such as The Cambridge Companion to American Science Fiction. He is also the speculative fiction editor for the Los Angeles Review of Books. In our chat today, we talk about his upcoming book on reverse colonization narratives in the science fiction of the 1960s, how he's calibrated his own best creative routines, why he congratulates his undergraduate students when they feel like they've failed, and the many flexible ways to approach the study and criticism of speculative fiction. Here we go. So, hi, David. I'm so, so happy to have you here today.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thank you.
0: This is going to be a super, super fun chat because I feel like my whole thing that I'm trying to do with this podcast is sort of talk about, like, art and process. And, like, you are one of the best people that I know to talk about, like, art and process.
1: Uh, well that (laughs) that's great I'm glad to hear you say that
0: so yeah so let's just dive right in because I know that you just recently completed a book manuscript so congratulations thank you thank you and yeah if you'd like to sort of like talk us through what that is and and all that we would love to hear about it
1: sure yeah you know it's funny um I I think that um I might be sort of an oddball in this regard because I think a lot of my academic friends um, you know think of nonfiction writing which is what I mostly do at this point um, you know different people it doesn't it doesn't clock for people as art uh, in the same way all the time but I really do think of it as art right uh, and I'm, I'm glad to get to talk with you about this because I you know I've, I've even recently like put together like a creativity collective where we're getting together to share like fiction and painting and nonfiction writing you know which is, mm-hmm. is kind of cool but but, um, the book manuscript itself has been <clears throat> you know this sort of uh, thing that I've been working on for forever uh, and I had a sabbatical last year which was really great to, to actually bring it all together and finish it up um, oh congratulations
0: so, that's huge to like yeah, have that time yeah Yeah,
1: that was I really it was so good like having, having a whole year to really just write uh, was unbelievable um, one of the coolest years I've ever had <laughs> um, but yeah the book so it's I call it um, the title of the book is Reverse Colonization, science fiction uh, empire, and the politics of victimhood, uh, and the short pitch, the elevator pitch. I've been honing, crafting this elevator pitch down. It's basically so the the book as a whole is about reverse colonization narratives, which are stories. The you know most famously like uh, H. G. Wells's War of the Worlds, right, uh, where you know the whole idea is that uh, the the science fictional conceit is that you know, there's a reversal of positions, right? Where the audience member who's usually part of a, uh, uh an imperial society, right. <laughs> is put in the position of imagining what it would like to be colonized rather than to be the colonizer. Right. So in war of the worlds, you know, HG Wells, you know, at, in the 1800s, when the book came out, um, you know, Britain was out colonizing the world, right. Uh, the sun wasn't setting on the British empire, all that jazz. And so, um, you know, uh, Wells writes the story and he goes, what, what would it feel like if a technologically superior race, i.e. in this case, Martians who, you know, who don't care at all about us as people, they don't even recognize that we're like sentient beings, you know, uh, come and, you know, basically murder us and take our stuff. And it was, you know, it was a pointed, uh, a pointed story because he's asking, uh, you know, he's asking his, his audience to imagine what it would be like to be on the receiving end of colonization rather than on the colonizing side, right? So, you know, I, I basically say, it, interestingly, very few people have really talked about reverse colonization narratives uh, in science fiction. Uh, there's been a little bit of talk. Some people have written about War of the World. Some people have written about Dracula, all sort of Victorian era stories that are about like uh, fears, British fears of reverse colonization during the, you know, Victorian era, 18, 1880s, 1890s, and so on. Right, and I kind of go, well, man, like that mode of storytelling has become the dominant science fictional mode uh, of the contemporary era. Right, sure. uh, yeah, so yeah. all of our stories, like we're we're all all imagining ourselves to be the rebel alliance fighting against the galactic empire to use star wars or we're all imagining ourselves to be katniss struggling against the capital or we're all imagining that we're neo escaping the matrix or whatever like um and so i started looking at this and i realized like the 1960s were the moment was was the moment when that changed right like when suddenly science fiction went from being a lot of times about colonization right to being about anti-colonization so science fiction during that sort of countercultural moment of the 60s you know like really became like let's fight the man rather than go out and be the man right um and so i, I basically argue I, I i look closely at the 60s but i argue that as a whole these reverse colonization narratives are great on one hand because they ask us to think about what empire feels like from the receiving end. Like at their best, reverse colonization narratives say, oh man, maybe we, maybe we, i.e., Um, Often white Western audiences should like think more carefully about like the ugly, terrible things that we are doing in the world. You know, Avatar, for example, James Cameron's Avatar is sort of wants that to be, you know, that's that's kind of its message on some level. Uh, But then the other problem, though, is that I think that this reverse colonization fantasy has led to a kind of dangerous science fictional thinking in our current political culture. You know, if you look around at um, the the sort of the fringe reactionary or even mainstream, you know, like certainly in reactionary movements like anti-feminists, incels, white supremacists, right, uh, neo-reactionaries, all these other types of people. They all have this weirdly science fiction, the way of imagining themselves as uh, basically like groups of white men who imagine themselves as oppressed minorities fighting against the man and fighting against the system. And if you look at their, their discourse, like they are totally uh, framing, they're totally able to do that because they're using science fiction to shape the way that they self-identify. Uh, you know, among anti-feminists, for example, you have red pillars, right? Which is, that's literally like, take the red pill, recognize, that you are trapped, that our society has been kind of corrupted by, you know, uh, feminist uh, superiority discourse, right? Like we're, we're all being oppressed by uh, rampant feminism that's trying to emasculate us and take away our manhood. And we've got to, we're, we're, we're now the minority. We're fighting back against that. We're colonized and we're fighting against the colonizers. So this is what I get into in the book. I say, you know, on one hand, reverse colonization fantasy at its best provokes us to think against Empire. Uh, but at its worst, and its at its worst is happening in a lot of places, um, reverse colonization fantasy becomes a way for advantaged privileged subjects to imagine themselves as oppressed minorities, which is absurd, uh, and, and becomes then sort of this fulcrum point or, or, or way of gaining political leverage, right? Like imagining, imagining oneself as the victim when actually one is the one with power, uh, has become one of the most troubling and prevalent, uh, kind of, uh, ideological, you know, whatever. It's become, it's become this ugly thing that's happening everywhere. You can even see this. I I don't know exactly what your audience is for this podcast, but I'm just going to go political here for a second. I mean, you can, you know, I, I I went, I went into this, you know, I, I, a lot of my thoughts around this crystallized uh, after the last election, because you have a president who has done a tremendous, tremendous job of, you know gaining support from people by saying look at us we're the minority we're fighting against the deep state we're fighting against the establishment we're the rebels and we're going to change you know the system like let's fight back against the system and i'm like you know what not only is that weird but you use science fiction a lot uh, Mm. in the way that you shape that imaginary and so as a person who's you know, sort of central research is about science fiction, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going like, wow, science fiction is one of the linchpins that makes all this weird ideological work uh, hold together, right, in these strange ways. All right, that was kind of long for an elevator pitch, sorry.
0: No, but it's brilliant. Like, I, when, when you sort of mentioned this project to me um, a few weeks ago, I just like, other than the fact that it's genius and I love it and I can't wait to read it and I'm so <laughs> excited for it to come out, it also, it like, it's... It's creepy in the good way. Like how perfectly, like all of this political stuff that's been happening has aligned with interests that you've had for as long as I've known you. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I it just like was that like a like you know like you said after the the last election? I mean, was that like a real light bulb moment for you, where you're like, wait a minute, all the stuff that I've been studying forever is suddenly like super super on the floor, like forefront. Yeah,
1: yeah, hugely so. Actually, it's kind of funny because I mean. You know, when I, 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 I've been working on this on some. in in some way or another since I was in grad school, you know, and in in the earlier versions of the project, you know, I'd get feedback from my colleagues and they were like, yeah, this is good, but it's not quite ready to be a book yet. And I was like, what? (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) Come on now. Uh, And so I kept kind of crafting it and working on it and working on it for, for a number of years and sort of rethinking it through. And I was publishing some smaller things like journal articles and stuff like that. And then, yeah, uh, during or around the last election, I mean, it was just like, you know, we're, we're, we're in this cult. Cultural moment where there is so there's so much like victimhood appropriation um on the part of people who have no business defining themselves as victims and i you know when i was looking at that and and thinking about it from 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 the science fiction that i was looking at i was like oh wow i i can i can sort of trace where this happened and what the consequences of it are and then you start looking at looking closely at some of these like creepy movements and they're just like they're they're Science fiction references everywhere, right? Um, And yeah, so it really did crystallize for me there. And when I then, you know, when I was at conferences and things, and I was like presenting the project in this way, my colleagues started going like, "Whoa, that that's I. When are you going to publish that? I need to reference that. (laughs) That's that's something I need." And I'm like, "Okay, now I think the book is ready." And so, or it was ready to like have a sabbatical's worth of rewriting and uh, new writing and research and investigation. So it's like, it's weird. Like originally, this was kind of in in its. form this was my dissertation project but it just wasn't it wasn't quite ready to really be a a book that that said something that would be like meaningful in a larger sense i might have been able to publish my dissertation um uh, and have it be out there as a monograph that a couple of people read, but nobody really cared about. But I was like, nah, hold on a second. Let's really wait and do this right. So that's why I'm, in comparison to a lot of people who finish grad school, I'm a little late getting my first book out. But hopefully uh, when this book comes out, it will um, it will touch people. Uh, and this, every time I, I pitch it to people now, they're like, whoa, that's scary, but in a way that's meaningful. And I'm like, okay, good. I'm, I'm, I'm where I want to be now. Let's get this out <laughs> of the world. And hopefully, <laughs> no, maybe... Lo- shame some of these like people into stopping doing what they're doing. I don't know. (laughs) Well,
0: and that was going to be another question. Like, have you, you know, I mean, I'm sure that most people that you're talking to at conferences are sort of like sympathetic to what you're saying and are like, Oh yeah, I can see that. And that makes sense. And I'm looking forward to hearing you elaborate on that. But if you had conversations with people, who are sort of on the red pill kind of spectrum where, where they're kind of like, like where their minds get blown by the position you're taking at all. Or,
1: well, you know, it's funny. Like every, the, the funny thing, the really striking thing about this topic is um, when I talk to anyone about how disturbing it is that people are, you know, um, uh, appropriating the position of victim when they, you know, maybe don't deserve to do so. The the funny thing about that is that that resonates with people both on the right and on the left. Everyone mm-hmm. know everyone thinks they know just who I'm talking about, right? did <laughs> uh, I say, you know, oh look, right, look at how victimhood has become this whole thing, and uh, you know, everyone goes, yeah, it really has. And you know, I so you you know, uh, I haven't had a lot of people who are. You know um uh very very conservative in their in their views who have like read the manuscript yet um but uh when i talk talk with people about it it's kind of funny like uh it's it's quite striking how you know from from a certain kind of more conservative position they go oh yeah right look at the way that um i don't know uh, uh look at the way that those liberals over there are trying to weaponize victimhood against, you know, normal people in a certain kind of a way. Um, and so it's, it's disturbing how resonant it is when I pitch it uh, because everybody thinks that the other side is the, are the people who are doing that. Right. Uh, right. Right. So one of the things that I end up doing in the book really, I, I, I spend time in the book kind of like, really trying to carefully do is to say, all right, look, we really need to think carefully and intersectionally about what we mean when we're talking about oppression or what, when, you know, like when, when is it legitimate to, uh, uh, to, to imagine oneself or someone else as a victim? When is it not legitimate to do so? Like, what are the real politics of, you know, oppression, systemic oppression, right? Who, who's really being colonized in, in and in what circumstances? And that gets very complicated, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of, um, there's work on, you know, there's a lot of academic work. I'm thinking of people like Wendy Brown and Diane Enns um, and others who, you know, all the way back in the 90s when sort of identity politics were becoming a thing, right? I mean, in, in terms of, The way that people were talking about it was sort of culture wars, period, all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's people on the left for for years and years, and even going back further than that, who are like, beware, really beware, right, of um, uh, imagining oneself, um, beware of identifying as a victim. in a a way that's about my group is oppressed and this other group is oppressing us because you can kind of lock yourself into that dynamic right Mm -hmm. you can uh there's been a lot of really important work that's that's basically said like look even if you are right the one who is in the position of right uh the the violence has been done against you right uh or your society is colonized i mean this goes all the way back to you know, uh, France Fanon uh, in the 1960s. You know, Fanon, uh, who was a, a major post-colonial sort of critic, he was he was writing about uh, decolonization in uh, Al- Algeria, right, um, and and uh, North Africa and places like this. And he was basically like, okay, look, we we need to be oppositional just long enough to get the to get the the colonizer's hand off of our throat, and then we need to stop thinking our, our, of ourselves as being victims because mm-hmm. if we stay locked into that victimhood dynamic. It's going to be like that. That becomes that sort of like we we continue to allow the oppressor to define us with this dynamic of inequality, right? And right. so he was like, you know, nationalism is important, but it's also poisonous. You got to be real careful about it, right? Um, I don't know. I, I, I sort of rambled off there, but uh, but the, the the point being that like I think uh, the this dynamic of Digging into the weird pleasure of victimhood. I call this imperial masochism. Uh, (laughs) nice uh, imperial masochism is is the pleasure of imagining oneself or or identifying with or connecting with the sense of victimhood that comes from being oppressed or colonized it's dangerous for everybody right is is really the, the the kind of message across the board right um i think it's most dangerous when people dig into it because they really like to mobilize the kind of power that comes from being the victim and that's dangerous for everybody right and now it's easy for me as a white guy to sort of say that, right, like, uh, and and I think it gets very complicated in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of contexts, right? Um, but I think that you know, I do think that one of the messages is like we all have to kind of be careful about how deeply we dig into the 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 kind of righteousness that can come from uh, victim identity. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm most disturbed. I have to. I mean, from where I'm at, I'm most disturbed by. You know, incels, right, doing this, uh, and anti-feminists and white supremacists doing this. You know what I mean? Um, So that's where I'm at with it.
0: Yeah, because I I feel like I saw you mention somewhere that um your is it your students or were you getting the pop up messages in in YouTube where you, they like you would be watching something and then there would be sort of like recommended for you and it was <laughs> one of these like dangerous little like recruitment ads basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was a while ago. I was I was talking. Yeah, one of my one of my students had this happen. Uh, it's basically like, yeah, it's it's we're at an odd moment, right? Uh, there's um uh. There's strange sort of social media algorithms and targeting that are occurring where you get like, you know, say say someone is, is curious about, I don't know, like a, a particular topic, like uh, curious about Charlottesville, right? Like what happened in Charlottesville? Um, and you start looking at certain YouTube videos. Well, there's algorithms that may notice that you're interested in those things, and then start um, start bombarding you with uh, you know or you ads or links to Jordan Peterson lectures, mm-hmm. which is weird territory, right? Uh, and and kind of like moves into this sort of propaganda of the of, of imperial masochism in a lot of ways. I don't know. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of strange stuff happening in terms of what what <laughs> what cycles through people's feeds uh, depending on what you're looking at. <laughs>
0: Um, so where where are you in the in the publication process right now? Like I know you just kind of recently you know locked down the uh, yeah. the manuscript, but are yeah. you, so you're pitching it out right now or?
1: Yeah, it's at you know it's funny this is so weird. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. Like I I there's a, a press that's interested, um, University of Minnesota Press. Uh, which nice. Is here, and there that would be a really good uh, publisher um, in terms of like the the reach and, and who 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 would in, end up having access to the book and how they'd market it and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they've they've, like, a year ago, uh, like, a year and a half ago, when I was first sort of starting to contact people about uh, the the project, they showed some interest, and they said, yeah, yeah, uh, we're, we're into it. Um, send us your materials when you're done. But then they've had, like, a bunch of editorial turnover, right? Like, uh, mm. a number of people who were going to be the editor working on the project have sort of left for other things and moved around. And so, currently, the editorial director um, at, at the press um, has my introduction and my first two samples Chapters, And he has said that he's interested and I can also tell that he's just completely overloaded with work. Uh, So he's taking kind of a long time to get back to me. Uh, And this is putting me in the position of like, Hmm, so what are the ethics of like talking with multiple publishers at the same time? Uh, And I think I mean, to make a long story short, I think that he basically gets about one or two more weeks. And then I'm going to start circulating like a kind of a broad, like, not sending chapters, but like, here's the two page, like, uh, in you know, introduction to the topic. Like, um, would you be interested in seeing more? Which then it'll take them a while to get back to me. And then if Minnesota ends up not biting, I could then send out materials. Because there's this whole weird, like... You can't, you know, you can't send your material to two presses at the same time because it's like the etiquette of that is not good. Because what if they both say yes, and then you have to say meh, 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 and all this other stuff? So it's kind of a pain. So I'm at the slow, sh- short version. I'm at the slow process of waiting for presses to get back to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's 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 going to go well. I, I've already had a couple of. of um, I've already had a couple of presses that basically said that they would take it. Um, but a lot of my colleagues have said, you know, you should try to you should try to land this at the highest Tier press that you can because it's it's worth getting out there uh, in a way. It's like there's some publishers that would publish it, but they they wouldn't be able to promote it very well. Nobody's heard of them. It would just sort of go off into the void, maybe right. Whereas uh, a you know a bigger press like uh, like Minnesota, you know it'll it'll be around, right? You know you you'd actually be able to to get access to it, you know that type of thing. So yeah, and then the process from here is it still takes a long time because if 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 a good academic press takes it, they're going to send it out to outside readers who will then respond and say, hopefully, yes, this is a great project, but we think it needs these revisions. And then you take some time to revise it, and then you send it back to them, and then they eventually get it to press. But it can be a long process, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be done with all of that process this year 2020 and actually hope that the book is in print in 2021 but I think 2021 would be on the early side of actually seeing a physical book in hand it's just the, the slow nature of academic publishing
0: yeah. <laughs> well this is like a good segue into the other part of sort of you as a, as a person that I feel like is remarkable is that like you have you know you're like the most Sagittarian Sagittarius that I know <laughs> and you have this incredible ability to just like run as hard as possible at a thing that that is inspiring you but you also have this enormous capacity for play Mm -hmm. and that I've always admired and that I think is they must they must work together you know in (laughs) in in concert I I have to imagine I mean I don't know maybe I'm I'm not meaning to put words in your mouth but like so looking at this year ahead and you know you're not on sabbatical anymore Mm -hmm. and you've got all this stuff that's going to happen like what do you do with that? Like, how do you, how do you keep yourself like sort of buoyed through that process? Like, is that a thing where these other, these other elements of the way that you structure your time, like does, does that help? Is it separate? Is it, where where is that for you? Well, I mean,
1: it's interesting. Like, I think, um, I finally, I, I, I think you're right. And thank you. That's really nice of you to say Like I, uh, I, I don't actually have a great capacity to continue running at something that is actually just stressful or boring or feels like tedious work to me. Uh, it has to feel like there is some fun in it on a very intimate day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis um, to, to keep going, right? Uh, I'm not actually very good at um, at forcing myself to sit down and do things that I don't like to do. <laughs> so,
0: well, that's yeah. why you're Sagittarius and not right. a Capricorn, right? Uh-huh. Like <laughs>
1: Maybe, I don't know. Uh, So yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my life has been about kind of setting it up such that it is, it is fun along the way. Right. Um, you know, think, thinking of one, I think of myself as a kind of a writer, first of all. Um, and, uh, then, you know, a a lot of, you know, like what, you, you know, the nuts and bolts of what comes next is I already have a couple of other projects lined up, you know, um, that I can kind of smaller, smaller publication projects to work on in the meantime. Uh, and then you end up. You know the, the, the way one's life looks is you're like, okay, so I finished this chapter, now I'm going to I agreed to write this book review, so I'll work on writing this book review while I'm waiting for the press to get back to me. And then after that, I'm going to be presenting work at a conference and, you know, the work that I'm presenting at a conference, you know, might be uh, another thing that I'm going to publish, or it could be the beginning of a new project, and by the time that's over, then I'll move in. You know, you, you kind of stack up so that you've got projects um you know, ahead uh, along the line. Uh, and that's part of the thing. Like, I, I feel like for me, it's it's, I'm a writer. I want to be I want to think of myself uh as a writer all the time. You know, uh finish one big project and that's great, take a little breather, but jump into the next thing and keep going because it's it's ultimately fun, right? Um I write every day. I uh almost every day. It was very easy. I, I wrote every I wrote almost every day when I was uh, on sabbatical. Um now that I'm teaching full time again, uh I'm still doing a pretty good job of writing almost every day, you know. So for me it really feels good to to get up, you know, kind of early, have my coffee and dive in and be writing. Um, uh, I, I feel the most fulfilled when I am moving right in uh, in my writing process. If I end up going two or three or four days and I haven't uh, connected with my writing process, I end up feeling kind of... Uh antsy, uh you know like one of those like I'm not doing the thing with my life that I want to be doing the most and I feel dissatisfied yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so getting it's taken a lot of work over many years to like really get writing consistently front and center and I'm still man I am still a a a, a novice at this and compared to some of my peers like I know people who like I'm I if I can be writing every day get an hour or two hours of writing done every day I feel like I'm Superman, right? I'm like, ha ha! I could do anything. And I've got some. I, I know some people who are so prolific. Uh, they're they're writing four or five hours every day, right? And they just they crank out books. These are like people who end up like having. I've you know over the past ten years, I've published fifteen books and forty articles. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> those <laughs> those people really inspire me um, or or challenge me to up my game. But um, uh, but yeah, I feel like if if I'm just like consistently connected with the uh, the the practice, then I feel really good.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask like, yeah, you had this whole long year sabbatical and like, was any of that like sort of eaten up with like, well, I'm going to go do something else and (laughs) clean out my refrigerator. But no, it sounds like you were pretty, pretty enthused about it.
1: I did get to do those things too. I mean, uh, there was, there was spring cleaning and other things that happened. Um, I mean, the thing thing I've learned about me as a writer is, um, I write best, uh, in the mornings, like I'll first get up and I'll write. And, um, The first two hours are really good. If I write for an hour, that's great. If I write for two hours, that's great. If I write for three hours, that's really impressive. And at that point, I'm just out of mental juice, right? Like, uh, so that leaves you a lot of other hours of the day to to, when you're on sabbatical, especially to do other things um, where you have to do other things because it's like, well, I'd like to write more. But after, especially after the three hour mark, sometimes after the one hour mark, sometimes after the 10 minute mark, but like, especially after the three hour mark, um, if I sit down and try to do any more writing, I'm just like tap, tap, an hour goes by and I did 10 words, you know, because there's yeah. just no juice left. Um, I need to, I need to refresh. So for me, you know, um, in my, in my ideal utopian world, right? Like, you know, you write in the morning and then I take the dog for a walk and then I read in the afternoon and, and more ideas are moving around. and I think of some more stuff and I get excited about it and then come the next morning, I'm ready to go. But yeah, some of those days, you know, are just like, well, gotta go see some movies now. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: stare at the ceiling uh, or clean the refrigerator, those types of things, you know, um, that's definitely the case. Uh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Now that you're back in the classroom, like, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, you've, you've been writing forever and ever and ever, but like how has, has how you approach teaching writing changed at all after having completed the book project? Like is the way that you interact with students who are frustrated or, or challenged, um, has, has your approach to that changed?
1: Um, not exactly since the sabbatical. I mean, so, you know, I've been writing, I've been doing composition classes for like, oh my god, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I guess I've been teaching comp classes for almost 20 years now. Uh, so the, the, my, my approach to my approach to teaching writing hasn't changed a lot just as, as a result of the sabbatical. Um, It has, it's more, it's always evolving. Right. Um, But it has uh, it's kind of now been in place for a while. Um, But I do share some of those things, like some of the things that that I have, that I have learned uh, over a long period of time. You know, I find myself telling my students a lot, you know, uh, um, you know, your first draft, it's okay. one of the big things I, I that I've learned about myself and that I, I kind of about my own writing process and that I try to share with my students is you'll know you get, you you'll have writer's block you'll feel like what you're putting down on the paper is shit uh, put shit down give yourself permission to write things that suck uh, it's the first step right and I, I do this with my students a lot we do a lot of kind of brainstorming pre-writing free writing you know that, that occurs on the front end uh, because they're like well I don't know how to make it good and I'm like don't start by trying to make it good start by letting yourself be terrible right mm. uh, start by letting yourself write something that's just awful. Give yourself the freedom to just say what's on your mind and wander through it and, you know, like, well, I think it might be this, but now that I'm actually talking about that for a minute, I think I was wrong and it's the opposite of that. Good! You just had a thinking breakthrough. Sure, you're going to have to rewrite it, but 90% of writing is rewriting, you know, when when it comes down to good writing. So I... I kind of came to that a long time ago, um, and that's one of the things that I that kind of share with my students. And I I do tell them, you know, don't try to do it all. You know, don't try to do it all at once. You have to break it up over the course of a little writing every day over the course of a week. It will be a lot better for you than trying to cram it all into four hours the night before it's due, right? Because you don't have time. You know, you don't have time to rethink what you said, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And when writing, especially nonfiction writing, like you need some time to 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 not only write it, but then stop and come back to it later and rethink about what you said there do I really agree with that? Is that really what I meant? Is it more complicated than that? Am I oversimplifying that point you know how's that gonna land the way that I said it you need that that it's a process so um, so yeah like I would say more that uh, what I what I do in my writing classrooms uh, kind of matches my own process in a lot of ways yeah you know?
0: And, and do you see your students really taking that on? Like, is that like a thing where over a course of a semester, like you're, you're watching them grow into that, like, oh, wait, it does work better if I do it this way.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, d- just depending on the students, right? Um, sure, you know, sure. different, different students are at different places. Some students come into my classroom and they already know how to write better than I'm really going to teach them in the context of this class. Others, uh, you know, they, they grow a ton right in that process. I had a great student last semester. She was really struggling with her research paper at the end, and she had this moment and, and this is this—it's a hard thing because people like she. She had basically gotten a bunch of research. She thought that her argument was one thing, and then as she was doing the reading, she realized that she didn't actually want to say what she thought she was going to say because she learned a bunch of new things and it changed her idea about the process and she came and she was like I feel like I've done it all wrong now I've got to get these other sources and I feel like I'm starting from scratch again and I'm like you rock Uh, because you just went through like a huge evolution a massive leap in your thinking process you started off thinking that you wanted to say X and then you realized that that wasn't good enough but it took a bunch of reading to get you there Uh, and then you 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 went out and you read and you realized that you had to change your entire framework from the ground up in order to really say the thing that would be right that you wanted to say. And, and she was all like, Oh my God, I feel like I failed. Like I've done it all wrong. And I'm like, no, I wish everybody could have the frustration and glorious joy that you are going to have. Like when you get to the end of this paper, because you, you, you took it to such another level than, than it would have been if you just, you know, like a lot of people when they write, they're like, well, I know what I want to say. Now I just need to go find some evidence that supports what I already want to say. Right. And that's not usually very good writing. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, the, the the real journey, I think, happens more when you set out with a question or an idea and then it refines and evolves and changes and you grow and discover something totally new and then have to figure out how to communicate that new thing that you've discovered. And she went through that process. I was really proud of, of what she what she had gone through, you know
0: no that's so dear the idea that like yeah initially thinking of that as a failure and then to I mean yeah. I'm so glad that <laughs> rather than just like sitting in her room in failure yeah. you know or, or or trying to force the force the realization back into the box you know that she came and talked to you about it like that's amazing yeah. that you were yeah. able to like talk her through that realization that's really cool yeah,
1: yeah I, it's, it's one of the hardest things to get across in the writing class which is that sometimes when you're doing it the most right you will feel the most uncertain and uh and and least confident right uh we don't like that we don't like feeling like we don't know the answer but sometimes when the process pushes you into the place of realizing that you don't know the answer you don't know what you're doing or whatever that's where the most growth can happen so it's the it's the bummer about writing is like it's like the good becoming a good writer a lot of times can is is about i think uh uh becoming comfortable with the fact that you might not be doing it right (laughs) or that you might be wrong or that you might need to change it all right from the ground up. Like, uh, yeah.
0: Well, so then like, you know, are, are you, are you dwelling in that at any point now? I mean, now that you're done with this first (laughs) manuscript and like you said, you've got a few other things on the horizon. Like, are you dwelling in that place with any of your, uh, your projects?
1: Um, well, it's one of, it is one of those things where like, I, even now it's like, I, I have finished the manuscript, but I, uh, even even as I look at it, I'm like, well, if I really want to do that chapter right, I need to go back and talk about, I should really go deeper into talking about this or that. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. There's one chapter in particular where I'm like, I, I kind of want to get into the post-truth conversation, right? Mm, uh, yeah. And and I there's a lot more that I would need to do in order to... Read and bring all that into what's happening in that chapter, and I'm like, well, you know, all right. The, I mean, the problem is the other problem with writing is it's an infinite process. You could always rewrite more and more and more and more and more. You eventually just have to have a deadline or a publisher, right, uh, uh, to sort of cut you off and, and keep going. So yeah, I I do know. I mean, yeah, I I'm I'm already comfortable with the fact that like even if this book comes out and it's good, a bunch of people will see flaws and problems with it because uh, they everybody w- will. You know what I mean? Like there's it's 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 all, it's all different perspectives, right? Uh, and I will wish uh, ten years from now that I had done something differently in it. But eh, take the experience, move on to the next book.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and because and that's kind of you know, I mean, and that's especially looking towards a career. I mean, you know, there's sort of the the cliche that, you know, most people only have sort of like one book that they just keep rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And that doesn't, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. That can just be like an infinite um, fascination with like a certain set of set of ideas that you just continue to hone over your life. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's funny. It was, I, I, um... I, I find myself thinking about George R. R. Martin, right? Uh, who, you know, with the Game of Thrones books, um, the the TV show outpaced the. He has he he didn't know how to finish. He he got stuck because he sort of knew but didn't really know how to finish the the series, right? So he kind of stopped writing the books and collaborated with them on the TV show, and then they finished it. And now he can see really clearly how not to finish it, right? <laughs> uh, so now inevitably he's like oh now I'm going to write the the end books right and do it do it right but he kind of had to see it done wrong before it would s- sort of stir him toward being able to do it right um it's sort of like using using uh, um, you know large media conglomerates and the entirety of a, of American and global culture as your revision process, right? So yeah.
0: <laughs> way to, way to go, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that's like literally the exact advice that you gave your student, just like yeah. in like macro. Yeah, <laughs>
1: do it do it wrong first. Spend a lot of money doing it wrong for a really big audience first, and then revise. It'll be perfect on the on the next track.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so I mean, so obvious. So what what are the um. Uh, you know, I mean, are, is, is uh, any of the Game of Thrones in your manuscript? Like, what are the other properties that you discuss in the
1: book? <laughs> no, no, you know, it's funny. I I don't um, uh, I don't look at Game of Thrones much. Uh, I don't look at Game of Thrones at all, right? Um, in, in the book, I actually talk mostly about science fiction from the 1960s, because uh, mm. my argument is is that the 60s is the moment when reverse colonization narratives became kind of the dominant trend in, in science fiction. You, you do see reverse colonization stories before the 1960s, but they were sort of one part of a large smattering a large spectrum of uh different kinds of science fiction narratives my argument is that after the 60s from the 60s on uh reverse colonization is the big story that is being told over and over and over again like i said star wars the matrix all that kind of stuff um but to get to that i think it's really useful to look at the moment of transition right the Mm. moment when uh when cultural attitudes about empire for example are changing because you have to think like you know it all goes back to world war 2 just a little tiny history moment here right like it, it, you know before world war 2 uh in western culture um it was thinkable, like one could be like, let's go out and colonize a place, right? Uh, we'll That'll be the glorious progressive march of human evolution forward and oh, there's people there, well we're going to either civilize them if they're available to that or eliminate them if they're just sort of like uh, leftovers from our prehistoric past. I mean, terrible, terrible colonialist, colonialist attitudes, but you can look at a lot of early science fiction and see these attitudes, right? Uh, you know, like, uh, let's go colonize the moon, let's go colonize Mars, let's go out and, you know, claim new territory and uh uh, conquer new frontiers, right? This was this was very possible as a story in sci- in early science fiction before World War II. Well, in World War II, like after World War II, all of the all of the kind of Western European colonies across the world. Uh, you know, achieve their independence. And by the time you get into the countercultural 60s, right, like the prevailing cultural attitude becomes like, oh man, colonizers are the bad guys. We want to be on the side of freedom, right? Like we want to be on the side of emancipation. We want to be on the side of liberation, right? Uh, and that, that becomes really the kind of dominant cultural attitude in the West, even as we're continuing to conquer other people, right? You know, the United States is, is engaging in imperialism during the Cold War on a massive scale, but we're doing it in the name of freedom. We're not going to conquer those people. We're going to free those people from somebody <laughs> right. else who's conquering them, right? Um, and so the entire discourse of empire changes. Uh, and I think that that happens in the 60s in a really, really profound way. So um, in the book, I look at... Uh, big thing big narratives from the 60s like the 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 1960s versions of the later blockbusters like Star Wars and uh, uh, and the Hunger Games so that's like Stranger in a Strange Land Dune 2001 A Space Odyssey right those those sorts of books and then I get off into like what's going on in the kind of weird avant-garde guard, the weird avant-garde corners of science fiction new wave science fiction so you're looking at people like um, Ursula K. Le Guin and Joanna Russ and uh, um, Samuel Delaney and people like that and seeing how they um how they treat these different themes right um and my my argument is basically that there, there's like from the 60s on this double potential has always been there right uh the double potential to either provoke your audience to identify uh with those who have been colonized in a way that would be positive <laughs> or to uh, invite them to identify as the one who the ones who are colonized in a way that is not cool and sets up this sort of victimhood appropriation. Sorry. That was a long answer.
0: No, no, no. It was brilliant. It's brilliant. And I mean, and so it's sort of, um, yeah, I don't, I like, (laughs) I, I don't mean this question to like to come off the wrong way, but it's sort of like, you're in this amazing position where, like you said, it's like, you're a writer and you get to write. And then you do have this freedom that a lot of these narratives are sort of seeking to, um, you know, whether for, for good or for ill, uh, trying to, you know, aim towards freedom. So like, how Mm -hmm. does, how does studying this stuff sort of impact your own brain, you know, or, (laughs) or or the way that you like live, live your life, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I,
1: you know, um, that's a good question. I mean, I think one of the, one of the most profound, uh, personal takeaways, uh, has been, I mean, man, you know, there are, it, 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 Cause it has definitely caused me to pause and self-reflect at times when I feel hard done by uh, by anyone. <laughs> you know, like we 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 can all have this. Um, you know, I, I think there's an almost universal uh, way in which when we feel like we have been hurt by others. Um, then we get the right to be righteous, right? Uh, When we are the one who has been harmed, when we are the one who has been oppressed, when we are the one who has been, you know, um, uh, victimized, uh, then then we get to... that, That then seems to mean... You get, out of, you get a get out of ethics free card, right? Like however you respond, right? Like is justified because you're the one who's been hurt. Um, and I'll, let me just tell you, right? Like, I mean, I had already before, before getting into this project, you know, been thinking very, very, very critically about American imperialism and global imperialism and the way that some cultures and economic systems and political decisions are really exploiting other people in the world, right? For the advantage of some and for the, exploitation of others right um but like this one's really this project in its in as i've really kind of written it through it's just been like you know when you're going through that breakup uh and you feel like this other person has victimized you like be real careful about like where that takes you right um Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, in terms of digging your claws into that feeling of being a victim and what then is okay in terms of your behavior right Mm uh you know i i i think you know I think that it is. It can be. In, this is not to say. Like I. I just want to pause and say. Like sometimes when people have. Like when 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 you have. When someone has done something awful to you, right, like that is not to say like you should just always <laughs> turn the other cheek and be the generous I mean, some 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 people are in a in a in a position where they have more resources to be able to do that than others, right? I'm not I'm not saying like nobody ever gets to be a victim. I'm saying it is in answer to your question, it's caused me personally to look at moments when <laughs> I am tempted to imagine that I have been wronged and therefore I get to bust out the fire. Uh <laughs> You shouldn't do that, right? Like in all (laughs) cases. Or you should be real, let's put it, you should be real careful about that. One should be really careful about that uh, is is really my, my big personal takeaway, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. No. And I, was, I wasn't meaning to like ask that question like in a way that put you on the spot. But yeah. No. I, no. Yeah.
1: Well. And then in particular, right? Like I, you know, I this, you know, so that's that's the very very personal. And then on, on another level, like the other personal part is like, you know, I'm I am a white uh, person who is usually identified as being a male person. This puts me in positions of privilege, right? Like, and I then look around and and start to see really really clearly how uh um how certain i I don't want to overcomplicate this but it's just like you know i look around and see how i benefit from right like uh the way that this stuff is operating in the world right and and in particular look at the way that you know um uh science fiction and other narratives uh, uh cultural narratives news stories whatever invite me to look at myself in a certain way me and everybody else to look at ourselves in in certain kinds of ways right and kind of go ah this is scary and awful right uh so all of that has definitely intensified as a result of the project
0: so where i mean like where does that come from for you like where does where did the grounding to be able to separate yourself out from those narratives like where did that come from (laughs) for you
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's weird like i you know honestly you know like back in in High school, uh, early college. I was really fascinated by frontier narratives, right, and the idea of the frontier and westward expansion. Because I was idealistic, and I had kind of grown up in a science fiction culture, right. Like I read, I read science fiction. I, uh, you know, watched Star Trek. I did all these things, and I thought, oh gosh, you know, like the exploration of the unknown is this cool thing. I want to do that. That's half the reason I went to California, right, uh, when I was in in uh, high school. It was completely naive too at that time. Right. Uh, I was completely naive to. Uh, the the uglier aspects of colonization and conquest and exploitation, right? Uh, so, you know, young me went off to school to write, study science fiction and Westerns and then, <laughs> you know, got, just like my students, right? Like got into, got into like really reading about what, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the American frontier, I or the sort of subtler colonial domination of indigenous lands was really all about uh, and found myself like, uh, uh, at times, humiliated by my own previous enthusiasm, right for mm. for that, uh, and uh, then like really called to uh, uh, to 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 do the right thing around it, right? You know, which is to say, like to to um, uh, contribute to the pointing out of how imperial and colonial discourse and practice are a terrible, terrible thing that are always happening that, that is, that has always been happening throughout American history in particular. Right. Um, and to figure out uh, what, what to do about that. Right. Uh, in, in terms of, Uh, In terms of making a a contribution along what what what's kind of happening in that world. Right. Uh, So, yeah, like I I've been through I've been through discovering that I was kind of on the wrong end of in in my youthful naivete. Right. Uh, Thinking that what I what I thought was uh, uh, only only a piece of a much larger more complicated and at times uglier certainly at times much uglier picture you know what I mean and so I don't know like well how do how does that personally kind of resonate with me or, or what do I personally do with that I I mean it really kind of comes down to being like well you know I Some of the stories that used to inspire me still inspire me because there is an aspect of, this is a a thing that I get into in the book, there is an aspect of exploration that isn't necessarily about conquest, right? Mm. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin really gets into this in her um, Hinesh novels, right? Sometimes it is... Sometimes the the joy of discovery, the joy of exploration, uh, the like I, I don't want to throw exploration out as something that is you know inherently polluted by uh, colonialist attitudes, right? Um, exploration can be a good thing when you are paying attention to the goddamn power dynamics that are in play between. Mm-hmm. Right, different people, right, uh, uh, on different sides of, of, of <laughs> cultural contact, right, or, or whatever. And I, I really think that's what I get into in the later parts of the book with Delaney and Le Guin. I think they are some of the greatest science fictional writers who think about, you know, what it really means to explore, what it really means to have an encounter with another. Um, that is not about domination that is not right. about exploitation that is not about uh, uh, you know one race winning and another race losing right like what does it really mean to to connect to communicate with another whether they're culturally other or whether they're literally an alien like what does an encounter with difference mean when it is truly transformative? Um, in a in a positive way, right um, I use the term cosmopolitanism to sort of refer to that right uh, mm. a, a kind of a um, a contact between people or entities of radical difference that um, hopefully, maybe doesn't always have to be about domination. Can be about something more positive. That's the thing I don't want to let go of in all of that. I, I young me, was right that there was something cool there. I just wasn't able to see all the colonial bullshit <laughs> <laughs> at first that was poisoning all that. You know what I mean? Uh, well,
0: story. but that's education, right? I mean, that's sure. just yeah, that's. Right. let being a young person, and you know, young, <laughs> you, you you can't come out of the womb knowing everything, and yeah, so you you study and you learn, and that's what it's all about. You know? Yeah, for sure. For for sure. Well, and I have to, you know, and on, on the, the the subject of Le Guin, have to thank you for being the person who introduced me to her work for the first time oh, ever yeah. as a small person when you gave me uh, <laughs> the RC trilogy for the first yeah, time ever. So yeah. thank you for that. <laughs>
1: well, you're very welcome. I love Le Guin. I mean, absolutely. One of my favorite writers for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I I need to read more of her. I've I read um, that little collection that came out just I think right after she passed away or right before she did, where it was all the collection of her blog posts. Mm. Um, no no time known time for something. I forget what the the title is, mm-hmm. but I uh, actually read it last summer when I was. Uh, traveling in uh, in Ireland with my partner and uh, and his dad visiting some of their their relatives over there and so i had a very very peaceful morning at a at a cafe in killarney reading Le Guin and just like crying you know because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's so wonderful like there's yeah. especially i'll have to um the poem that she wrote about she had this cat that was bad and uh, and killed a mouse and she <sighs> wrote this po- this poem for the mouse that died and i just was like weeping for the mouse <laughs> 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 and, uh, in uh, in in County Kerry uh, last uh, summer. So that's anyway, great. so so, that's, <laughs> so that that uh, in in its own way, traces back to you. So thank you for that. Uh,
1: well, you know, and- um, if you like, just as a quick plug, uh, if you if you still like those Earthsea books, uh, um, there's a beautiful illustrated edition of the collected Earthsea stories
0: uh, mm. that just
1: came out last year. And right before she died, um, Le Guin worked with Charles Vess on the illustrations, oh, cool. and they worked together to really like to really make sure that the images that he was creating for the, for the volume, this beautiful hardcover volume uh, really fit her vision, right. Of, of what the earth stories were. And it was one of the last collaborations, basically the last major collaboration that she did before she passed away. And I oh, had the chance God. to sit on a panel with Vess, uh, with Charles Vess as he was talking about it. Um, and it was really touching, right. Uh, to, to hear about the way that they collaborated. And I have to say now that I have it, the, the images are just
0: fantastic.
1: So if you want a definitive, like, for your shelf, beautiful edition of all the Earthsea stories. I, I, I would say get that final illustrated edition. It's a really good one.
0: Oh, I have to look at it because I'm I'm literally looking at a Charles Vest print right now yeah. um, in my par- in my partner's office. He has uh, the yeah. Midsummer Night's Dream um, mm-hmm. illustration here on the wall, so I, I am super excited about checking that out. He's so great, yeah. That's cool that you got to meet him. Oh my god. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I I'm, I'm i I help organize this conference, the International Conference for the Fantastic and the Arts, uh, which is a big conference that brings together scholars. Uh, and um uh mostly it's like 80% scholars and like 20% writers and artists, right? So it's like an academic conference, but it's way more fun than most academic conferences because it's all <laughs> people who are there to talk about science fiction, fantasy, and you know, other related things, and you get a lot of authors and artists and people like that who are there as well. And uh so it's a result of that I got to, to be on a panel with uh, with Charles Vest who which was really really fun. Um that's amazing. That's- sort of the high one of the high you talk, talk about how, how do you like how do you continue to make it fun uh, um, communities right uh, that you connect with around your work are, are one of the biggest things that, that make it fun and ICVA, mm. um, th- that that conference is really um, I call it the burning man of my academic year
0: because uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was actually a question that I was gonna ask you sort of like what what is the state of, um, of, of sort of sci-fi scholarship these days like what does that look like for you and and, and is there like a big community around that? Or is it still kind of small and scrappy?
1: Oh wow! What an interesting question. Uh, there's so much to that one could talk about there. Uh, um, it's you know, there's been a, a there there has been a very uh, rich um, community of people doing science fiction scholarship for many many years now. Um, for a while, it was kind of its own bubble, right? Um, for a while, you know, you had a few conferences and a few journals really where the major work in science fiction studies was occurring, right? Uh, There's a journal called science fiction studies. There's a journal called extrapolation. There's a few other things like that. Um, But I mean, you know, even, even before the, that bubble opened up, there was actually, there's quite a lot, right? There, there are um, a lot of people all across the country, all across the world doing work in, in science fiction scholarship. Um, What's happened in the last uh, 10 years is that uh, that now major like now the bubble has sort of popped in a certain way so that there are a lot of people doing work on the science fiction that don't think of themselves as science fiction scholars they just think of themselves mm-hmm. as being like as doing like work in american literature or doing work in uh american studies or science and technoculture studies and things like that and so as a result what's kind of happened is is like um i don't want to say i mean it's like like at, uh In the 1940s and 50s, right, if you were an academic trying to do work on science fiction, you had to make a case for the legitimacy of the thing that you were looking at. That's just gone now, right? There's people at Cornell who are like Cornell and Harvard and Duke and all these other places who are like, well, yeah, you know, naturally because you know, if we want to talk about um, any of these major critical issues that are important at the moment, um, looking at uh, speculative fiction is just just part of the deal now, right? Uh, There's not there didn't, there used to be kind of a, a ghetto, I suppose you could say, or, a, a you know, like there used to be a, a um, there used to be a separation between like serious literary and filmic work and speculative, right, work. That's just gone, right? Uh, you know, at this point now, um, if you go into a graduate program to study literature, like you might be doing literature, um, science and technoculture studies, you might be doing work about literature in the, in the environment, and you're going to kind of pretty naturally find yourself talking about both non-speculative and speculative works, right? Mm, uh, mm. and, and part of that's just because like speculative fiction has become just sort of part of the fabric of our day-to-day life in so many ways. Yeah. You know? But also a lot of the a lot of the authors and artists who are doing work that most significantly like addresses the Anthropocene, right? Uh or or these various other things, um, are, you know, that's they're that's, that's Jeff Vandermeer. That's like, you know, like there's, there's, there's not the kind of division that there used to be. Right. Um, Which means now, interestingly, uh, it's kind of funny, used to be to, to really, to really see the top, top work happening in science fiction studies, you would go to certain conferences, right. Uh, You know, and, and you know what they would be. It would be like the SFRA Eaton Conference or ICFA or a couple of things like that. Now it's like, Go to any of the conferences and see the really big people doing it, right? Wow, yeah. Uh, And some, some, some—I mean, like there's there's big people at at all kinds of places. I'm not trying to say you know that that those conferences, which I'm I'm very active part of their culture. They're fantastic and top top quality people are there. But it's like there's also top quality people like uh, at big big universities who are writing books that are basically about science fiction studies books who've never come to those conferences and don't know my friends. You know what I mean? Right, Uh, right. Because it's just become it's become a part of a larger Larger set of critical trends um, in uh, in academic work as a whole,
0: and is that I mean I because I see sort of similar things like at a distance at a remove um, with my partner who does a lot with comic scholarship yeah, yeah, where yeah. where yeah where it was like you know sort of a little niche thing for a while and yep. then even just in the past like you said ten years it's yep. really boomed a lot but it's it's been funny where. Um, in a lot of the the presentations with some of the younger scholars or people who are just sort of like belatedly getting into the field, they're they're really focused on like what's happening right now. And there's like, you yeah. know, huge swaths of people who don't remember, um, you know, not that they necessarily need to, but they don't know, they're not familiar with like some of the older scholars and some of the sure. older work. And is there like, a is, does that, does that happen with the sci-fi scholars too, where there's like people who are muscling their way in, so to speak. And like, guess what? I'm going to tell you all about it when it's like, You it's like oh well go back and and learn your history a little bit better.
1: Well, you know that's an interesting thing, right? Because it it's all people are coming from different perspectives, right? Like so, this that's an interesting thing. Uh, I'll give a brief. Uh, uh, example of that in in science fiction studies culture right like I in science fiction studies right uh, you want to talk about the history of it right like uh, for the longest time to be doing work in science fiction studies you would have to take seriously the history of science fiction scholarship which is like involves Darko Suvin and cognitive estrangement right and so and if you weren't talking about that then you 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 haven't done your homework right well, now you've got people like coming out of other places who are just like, um, who, who want to talk about something. And sometimes, sometimes, yeah, they 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 are, you know, they're applying the the hip critical lens of the day, right? Uh, and they haven't gone back and done that earlier. They haven't done that earlier work or earlier reading, right? But also sometimes they refreshingly are not all tied up in some of the bullshit stakes that somehow got built into. Everyone's got to be talking about X or Y or Z in order for sure. them be doing serious work in that in that field and you get people who sometimes come along and they're just like i that doesn't matter to me at all we should be talking about this instead and you kind of go like huh you're you're right we should be talking about that instead right like why Mm -hmm. why would we be spending all of our time talking about cognitive estrangement when we really need to be talking about the anthropocene right uh not that of course those things can link right uh but uh but it's sometimes i think the the fact that that science fiction studies has moved out of a, a narrower uh, a stream of discourse means that yeah you're right at times you get people who come along and and they're they're like I said applying. Hot, hot thing of the moment, right? To their reading of whatever, and they they haven't necessarily yet, you know, integrated some of the important insights from from previous times. This this does happen, right? But I I think that one of the better things that occurs is that you end up getting perspectives that just wouldn't have been there, right? You know, you get somebody from uh, uh, you know geography and community planning ends up wanting to talk about speculative spaces or whatever, and they're bringing in. uh, An entire other critical tradition, right? Mm. Uh, That that I might never have heard of, and yeah, they haven't read all the same stuff that I've read. But they don't necessarily have to do that to say something meaningful uh, uh, in in their work, right? Like I, I think that yeah, sometimes previous wisdom is lost, but other times the, the, the bullshit politics of previous gatekeeping can be overcome. You know yeah, what I mean? You're that's right? a good like, point, yeah. Does everybody who writes about comics really have to cite Scott McCloud or whatever? You know
0: what I mean? It's like, <laughs> God, I hope they would stop, yeah. Well, I mean, right. <laughs> that's what I'm
1: saying. That, exactly that in some cases. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: No, that's cool. I was just curious because it also seems like, I mean, is it... From your perspective, like so, you know, the the g- geography guy coming in, you know, just uh, you know, off the top of my head, is that is that ability to combine uh, other disciplines is that unique to to sci-fi scholarship no, in a way? No, like, I no? think
1: interdisciplinary work is. Um, I think there's been a huge movement towards um, interdisciplinary work um, in, in the last number of years. I mean, well, so, I mean, I, my background's in American studies, so I, I may be, I may be kind of like uh, uh, influenced by that. Inter- American studies has always been, well, since I've been in American studies, it's been very interdisciplinary. Right. Um, and I, I think that uh, there's a very, uh, um, I think that interdisciplinarity is, is really where a lot of work is, is, is happening right now. I think you're, you're, the the more you go off the more you, as an academic or intellectual, go off and cloister yourself with only people who are talking about your thing the way that they talk about it, the less relevant that work is going to be. You know what I mean, right? Like, uh, in in our moment right now, at least. You know, um, I don't. I, 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 gosh, maybe you should edit that out. I don't mean to offend anyone there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but well,
0: I mean, and I yeah, guess I, I meant less like um, is is and I didn't mean like are you guys the only ones doing it, but sort of is no. there is there something about science fiction that uniquely lends itself to do doing that more or in a more um or in a more sensitive or acute kind of way.
1: Well, I mean, maybe, right? I, I mean, I think, you know, with with science fiction, right? Like, just right now, mapping the landscape right now, you know, um, you wouldn't, if you're doing science fiction studies, are you doing literary studies? Certainly not. You have to be doing literary and media studies, right? Because there's books, right? But then there's also uh, films and television shows, and music and all kinds of other forms of expression that are science fictional. I just went to an excision concert, which is a crazy dubstep artist. And as mm-hmm. I was there watching these massive light show with lasers and animations and like stories in the music, which the music itself sounds very science fictional. And on the giant display of the animated sort of massive music videos that are playing, it's all like robots with weapons and doing this. It's all science fiction, right? This is a science fictional mode of storytelling. but it's not literary. So one, just in terms of the media, right, you're you're looking at an interdisciplinary approaches. But then like, all right, when we're talking about science fiction, what are we going to be getting into? Well, there's certainly stuff about the environment and eco-criticism that occur there. So, uh, you know, whole bunches of people that are interested in problems with climate change and, you know, energy futures and petrocapitalism and all that, right, are going to look at, can can productively look at and speak to science fiction. Uh, If you're like me and you're into, I mean, you know, these things all intersect, right? Questions about empire uh, and identity politics, like that's all sort of gets in there and intersects. Cultural studies, you know, um, there's one of the big things that's there's a lot of conversation about futurity right the way that we imagine the future the way that we mm. uh, the way that how we imagine the future brings certain futures into being or prevents other futures from coming into being that's a mm-hmm. huge topic of conversation right now in mainstream kind of like critical theory that that is hugely relevant to science fiction but not limited to science fiction at all um, right. economic questions come into play so you get people who are like you know like we want to look at capitalism and speculative finance well science fiction touches on all that stuff And then you get like um uh you know um uh entirely different traditions there's a really big thing with like indigenous futurism for for example mm-hmm. and afrofuturism obviously it's been around for a while but you get people coming in doing work on like okay you know we're looking at like how indigenous science fiction writers and creators uh do things that are totally different than Asimov and Heinlein and Clark uh, the, because it, it imagines science from a radically different perspective. Uh, mm. So, yeah, does science fiction l- like lend itself to interdisciplinarity? Yeah, of course it does, right? Uh, but, I mean, one of my arguments would be like, almost anything that you want to look at seriously lends itself to interdisciplinarity, right? Like sure, sure. not to, not to beg on Walt Whitman scholars, but if Walt Whitman scholars are just want to get together and talk about Walt Whitman from the perspective <laughs> of like a celebration of the author's life. Uh, and they're not going, I mean, even, even Walt women scholars at this point would be thinking about, you know, nature and eco-criticism and environmentalism and, and religious studies. And I mean, everything's intersectional in, in, in the sense of like, uh, or interdisciplinary in, in, the ter- in, in the sense of like to get to what's important there you've got to be you, you hopefully would bring together multiple lenses or multiple angles of view right
0: mm. does that make sense well that makes perfect sense and I feel like that's an <laughs> awesome note to end on because I feel like that's you know like a good yeah that's that's really well said and okay. uh and, yeah. and 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 an inspiring <laughs> an inspiring notion to go out into the world with I think that just yeah it's everything everything is everything as no name says <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah so I'm incredibly excited about your book like I said when it comes thank out you. so yeah. I'm keeping my fingers crossed that uh <laughs> University of Minnesota gets back to you yeah, and if, if they don't then <laughs> someone else uh, snaps you up because yeah the book just seems really incredibly vital and incredibly current and incredibly important so um oh, I'm rooting you.
1: for you I hope that it gets picked up relatively soon and reaches an audience that it means something to <laughs> okay.
0: And in the meantime, is there anything else that you want to sort of uh, in- advise people where you will be appearing or, or, or things that you're working on that you think people would want to know about?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I guess my big plug would be, I'm not on social media a ton. Um, I One of one of the my favorite places where I do work is with the Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, which is an online magazine, also has a print version of a magazine, and I'm the speculative fiction editor, right? Uh, and I guess my biggest plug would be, uh, check out the LA Review of Books. Uh, that's uh, LA. LA review of books.org. Oh my God. I don't even know our own website. Hold on a second. Uh, yes, LA <laughs> L- 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 review yeah. of books.org. Um, one, there are so many great people doing work there in all kinds. If you like books of any genre, right. Uh, I would say, uh, check it out, right. You can, you can go on there and you know, it's, it's tough. We, we, we have the opportunity less to physically browse in bookstores and see what's interesting to, to maybe be talking about. The LA Review, I think, is a great website for just go to the front page and you can see, oh, here's some interesting books that are out and and people saying like crazy, cool things about them. Um, and uh, there are different genre pages. You can go to the SF page, you can go to the comics page, you can go to all the very different various different subsections page to look at things there. And I will just, I'll, I'll give a plug to a lot of my friends. I, I have had the opportunity to invite a lot of um, science fiction scholars or people who do work in speculative fiction studies to uh, um, to write and contribute uh, book reviews there and it's just great it's incredible work um, so that would be my biggest plug check out, um, check out the LA Review of Books if you are a reader and you will find it will fill you up with things that you want to read
0: mm, That's awesome, like I said I'll link that in the show notes so people can go easily find that and, uh, and enjoy yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, making time to chat about all these amazing topics today. I'm super invigorated and inspired (laughs) and like, I'm like, yes, I want to go write and read and do all these things.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. It's fun. I haven't been on a podcast like this before. I think it's really awesome that you're putting this together and it's great to get to talk with you (laughs) too.
0: As David alluded to about halfway through our chat, we've known each other for a good 25 years now, and this has been almost exactly how we've always communicated best, just shouting enthusiastically at each other about the art and ideas that are most fervently capturing our respective imaginations at any given moment. So it's extremely gratifying to be able to share a small slice of our long friendship here today with you on this podcast, as well as hopefully introducing some of you for the first time to his singular brilliance. The other thing though that I really want to draw your attention to uh, before the show closes out is almost exactly the opposite of what I initially thought our conversation was going to be about. Like I said fairly early on, I find David remarkable for the way that he's able to integrate a sense of fun and playfulness into everything he does. But also, notice this. That book he's going to be publishing within the next year or so? He's been working on that in some form or or another since graduate school. That's like at least 10 years, and actually probably a bit more, depending on when he first started putting together the research and thinking about the first drafts of his dissertation. So there's a lesson there for us all, and for me too, especially, uh, in letting things just take the amount of time that they need to take, no matter if we feel like they quote should be ready sooner. Sometimes ideas just need to keep cooking until they arrive at the right moment. Whether that moment is within the context of one's own personal life, or as in David's case here, when the larger culture shifts in such a way that changes uh, how one's ideas can be received by a broader audience. So until that book is finally published, you can find more of David's writing and editing work at the Los Angeles Review of Books online at lareviewofbooks.org. And you can find links and contextual notes about our chat on my website, queenofpeaches.com. Bye for now.